Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, after the close today, the Walt Disney Company is scheduled to release its first quarterly earnings since it acquired most of the assets of the 21st Century Fox Company for over $70 billion. To break down those numbers, we welcome our good friend Porter Bibb. Porter is a managing partner at MediaTek Capital Partners. He joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Porter, I think when these numbers come out, one of the things that people are really going to focus on is Bob Iger's plan for transforming this company into a streaming company. What's your take on the, their ability to do that? Well, they've got the ability, but Bob Iger is a little late to the game, so it's going to cost him a lot more than it might have if he jumped in two or three or four years ago when he started talking about streaming. But there's no question that Disney has the content and the management and the capabilities of, of making Disney Plus and not, not to exclude ESPN and ESPN Plus uh, absolute winners. It's going to cost them a lot more than I've seen the numbers. People are talking about hundreds of millions. I think it's going to be, if you look at, at uh, what, what Netflix is spending now, uh, last year, 13 billion. This year, probably close to 15 billion for new content. Disney doesn't have to do all of that, but they're going to have to market the hell out of the, the, the services. And it's going to be billions of dollars before they start to make profit. So that's the big cost, is the marketing. It's a big cost. No, but the, the marketing is the big uh, cost. Marketing, because they, they, they've uh, announced that they're going to open up their entire archive of Disney and Fox. Everything that Fox and Disney have ever produced in history is going, instead of holding it back for five to seven years for each next generation of viewers, they're opening it up now uh, on day one. And that's going to be a huge asset. If, if you're a parent, <laughs> and you have kids, you, you cannot survive if you don't subscribe to Disney+. Plus. So the, the, real, the bear case for Disney over the last several years has just been this cord-cutting issue and the impact that it has on ESPN. Yet we just saw um, Disney sold some of the regional sport networks to Sinclair for what I think the market thought was a very low price. Half of the estimated Half. value. So yes. what is your view of sports and you know sports programming and sports rights and all that sports is propping up cable right now because so much of live sports is is still on cable and not streaming but once those rights run out and the streamers start to spend money for sports rights uh cable is going to be in a very vulnerable position maybe not even survive more than four or five years okay so if cable doesn't survive four or five years uh, who gets destroyed and who gets to uh, win the game here? The big question that the, that all the content producers are facing right now when they look at, at the opportunities in streaming is how are they going to make the same kind of money they were getting from the cable companies who paid them billions of dollars in transmission fees for the content that they were giving to the cable distributors. They don't get that from anybody when they're streaming their own content and the only two revenue streams they have are subscriptions and advertising. Disney has said initially no advertising on Disney+. Plus. The, the sports channels probably are going to have to have sponsorship and significant rights payments and, spon 
and advertising to make a, a profit. But they're, they're going to be, a, 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 there's a sheer, serious shortfall in revenue generation from streaming versus cable in the near term. Well, I think, you know, on the earnings call tonight for the for Disney, they can certainly take a well-deserved victory lap for Avengers Endgame. I mean, I think we're over $2 billion in global box office. There's, there's a lot of folks out there saying it will become the number one film passing Avatar, which was a $2.7 billion global box office. What, how does your view, or what is your view of the Disney theatrical business over the next several years? Well, <laughs> Disney owned o- over 60% of the box office revenues from, from 2018. When they add Fox on top of it, they've got nearly 80% of the box office. They announced yesterday uh, the, the uh, release dates theatrically of uh, all of their blockbusters f- through 2027, and they, they are going to own the theatrical box office for but the I next noticed 10 they pushed, years. A- they pushed Avatar avatar out a year was going to be yeah. i guess in 2020 now it's 2021 or 21 something. right yeah so for the avatar fans at least i know you're a diehard avatar fan you have yeah. to wait another year oh okay thank you and, very and, much and, and you paul i know that you've seen the, endgame about 15 times so uh, well, i'm sure that you've added to uh, the, their box the, office the real revenues. unspoken potential for disney though is china in streaming um it, it's remarkable that uh, avengers endgame generated 350 million dollars at the box office in china the the biggest box office score that any american film has ever created in china and there are legal and and regulatory problems but china is going to so- i mean disney is going to solve those uh and partner with tencent or uh e Xi, the big streaming dominant factor in China, and that's a market that will generate billions of dollars of new revenue for Disney. Well, it's funny you mentioned China because Lisa and I all day and you know all across uh, Bloomberg Media, obviously talking about the trade yeah. talks in yeah. the U.S. and China, and one of the big parts of those trade talks, it's not just you know soybeans and microchips, it's also movies and TV that's shows. Right. So, what do you expect to happen in these trade talks as it relates to some of those? restrictions on Western content. As far as I've been able to discern, uh, creative content is not even on the table in in these uh, trade talks. And to me, this, we're, we're going to have an agreement uh, because both uh, President Xi and President Trump need a, a success and need need a deal. But it's going to be a, 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 a sham because they're they're staying way away from any of the technology transfer issues. They're staying way away from currency and currency manipulation. Um, we'll buy some Chinese products. They will buy billions of dollars worth of soy and pork because they have a, a crisis in, in, in pork in China right now with, yeah. with swine disease. So uh, everybody wins, but nothing really changes. So uh, just uh, just to sort of pit Disney versus Netflix, because Disney is going to give some guidance, I'm sure, from their streaming service, looking at Netflix right now, shares up about 36% so far year to date. Uh, what will it take for Disney service to really be a Netflix killer, as you have said in the past? It's in in my perspective, it, it's not a Disney is not a Netflix killer. What is is a Netflix killer is the failure of individuals to bundle Netflix, Disney, may, maybe two or three others, HBO, maybe uh, Comcast, NBC Universal streaming service that's going to launch this autumn. Uh, my, my sense is that people are going to put five or six of these streaming services together. That, that'll raise the cost to them, the subscription cost of maybe 75 to to $100. It's still 
almost half of what you're paying cable. But if Netflix is not a part of that, they're, they're going to lose. And the big problem that Netflix is facing right now is when can that company actually make a profit? Yeah. They, that is a key question, especially given how much debt they currently have. Porter Bibb, thank yep. you so much for being with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Porter Bibb, managing partner for MediaTek Capital Partners, uh, talking about all things Disney. Well, it's not just equity markets that have put in stellar performance this year. The credit markets have also performed exceptionally well. And also the Fed appears to, I guess, remain content to remain on the sidelines. So to get a sense of what that all means for the fixed income market, we talked to Randy Brown. Randy is a chief investment officer for Sun Life Financial. Uh, Randy, thanks so much for joining us. Just wanted to get your sense where you might see value in the corporate bond market today. Um, yeah, so good morning. Um, we see value in the corporate bond market today, really in the private corporate market versus public markets. And um, really, I'd, I'd put that on a couple of different reasons. One is at this point in the cycle, which we think we're sort of late stages of the cycle, everyone loves to ask what inning. We, we would say seventh inning. We just don't know how many innings in the game anymore. So late, late stages in the cycle, certainly the runway has been extended. But um, we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of corporations that we believe are a bit over levered um, yeah. in the market, in the public market. So we've moved a bit to the private markets where we're able to pick up spread, pick up um, covenant protection, pick up uh, collateral behind us um, as opposed to an unsecured credit. And so we've we found value uh, there. Okay, so this is actually really interesting because uh, perhaps you give up a little bit of liquidity, but you get the extra spread and the extra protection on the covenants. And I'm just wondering how much excess you're starting to see baked into private debt markets. I'm thinking, for example, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink said yesterday at the NEPC investment conference in Boston uh, that perhaps investors are now over allocating to alternatives and he was including private debt in that. What's your take on it? Um, so I, I do agree with uh, Larry, but we're talking about two different parts of the market. So I believe what Larry is speaking to uh, in private debt is typically in the U.S., most investors, when they speak of private debt, are talking about middle market loans. And so there's been a huge amount of capital raised in that sector. Um, so those look more like the syndicated loan market, just in private space. Uh, where we've been focusing as a life insurance company with um, capital um, capital constraints, et cetera, we look at the uh, at the investment grade part of the private debt market, and there uh, that's really typically the purview of the life insurance companies, uh, a little bit in the um, in pension funds, and that is not a particularly overcrowded space. It's really the middle market space. I believe that Larry refers to. So, Randy, give us a sense of kind of, you know, what are the sectors that, you know, are attracted to the private equity or the private bond market? Are there sectors or types of issuers that are most attracted to that market? Um, it's really a broad swath. Uh, I, I think what I'd say is, is um, it's a very diverse market. Anything from some corporates, some of the smaller um, corporates that don't feel that they uh, want to take the uh, um, operational overhead to go to the public market, 
um, but they think that they can access capital, which they can, from uh, for private sources with much less of a reporting burden. So you see it there. You've seen some sort of innovative structures where people need, uh, as an issuer, where you need flexibility. So flexibility in terms of terms, in terms of, um, of tenor, yeah. um, those sorts of things. So the private market gives the issuer a lot more flexibility as opposed to typically issuing five-year, seven-year, 10-year, 30-year debt. Randy, I, I assume that you at, at Sun Life, uh, you're not alone among insurers in going into this area, correct? That's correct, yeah. I, I've heard of this as sort of being an increasingly popular area over the past bunch of years, and I'm just wondering, what's the risk on the liquidity side if there was some sort of need to either rejigger your portfolio or for whatever reason, sell these bonds. How much of an audience would there be for them? Um, well, I'd, I'd separate. It's a good question, and it's one um, certainly I get internally and externally quite a bit. So I, I would say, first of all, we um, we run a lot of liquidity stress tests. So we're not going into this sector with the idea that in a in a crisis we're going to need to sell it because it really is pretty much a buy and hold type of product. That being said, in 2008, we as a company were able to sell quite a bit, um, particularly in the 144A part of of the market. Um, you know, the beauty of, of, of the life insurance model uh, versus, let's say, the bank model is it's very hard to have a run on, quote, run on the bank on a life insurance company. So we are, we in pension funds really can take a very long perspective on our investments because we don't have those um, those heightened liquidity and leverage constraints yeah. that banks have. So, Randy, just real quick here, how much have you increased your allocation to the private debt market? Uh, we've increased it about three uh, percent of our assets over the last uh, several years. Up from? So it doesn't sound like a, a, a big move, but actually, for for LifeGo, that's actually a fairly big move. Up from from a zero percent allocation? No, no, we we've been in these markets for you know, over 50 years. <laughs> so we're currently at about 20% asset allocation in, in just the private debt space. Randy Brown, thank you so much for taking the time. Really interesting area and one that I hope we have you back to talk about. Randy Brown, Chief Investment Officer of Sun Life and Head of Investments for Sun Life Investment Management. Well, Iran is threatening to abandon limits on uranium enrichment unless Europe throws it an economic lifeline within 60 days, basically uh, putting in peril potentially the 2015 nuclear accord. Joining us now to talk about this, Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. Ariel, how scary is this? I mean, are we looking at what is ultimately a, a likely devolution of this nuclear treaty? Indeed. And I am wondering if this is walking into a minefield without a map. Um, we have not just Iran being extremely aggressive. Uh, the more we push the Mullah regime, uh, the nastier they become. They funded uh, the extremists in the Gaza Strip, uh, an organization called Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, to shoot rockets at Israel and then Hamas, which also... Uh, received support from Iran in the past and possibly is still receiving it. 
uh, they chimed in, uh, shooting over 600 uh, rockets into Israel. Uh, they fund uh, the fully owned subsidiary in Lebanon called Hezbollah, which our government, uh, the U.S. government, said that it is um, the prime, the, the A-League of terrorist organizations around the world. And uh, unfortunately for us, uh, the Europeans, the Russians, and the Chinese are on the Iranian side and not on the U.S. side. And uh, walking into something like that without uh, allies is uh, really a questionable proposition, I would say. So, Ariel, the Trump administration walked away from this nuclear agreement about a year ago. So from you know, given that perspective, how would you characterize the U.S. position towards Iran now? Uh, the Trump administration correctly, in my opinion, disliked, and President Trump disliked the deal negotiated by the Obama administration. It, it uh, put a, the clock ticking in terms of Iran being capable of developing nuclear weapons and still developing ballistic missiles um, as we speak. But at the same time, uh, I think the Trump administration wanted uh, to impose sanctions on Iran and uh, bring that uh, regime under pressure from its own people, uh, whether it's happening or not. I think it's happening somewhat. But at the same time, we're targeting the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, and that is a nasty organization. Think about a combination of Waffen, SS, and KGB. Yeah. <laughs> it has a military component and a security police component. And uh, we declared these guys terrorists. They declared us, our troops in the Middle East, terrorists. They said we're going to, they're going to target our troops in Iraq and yeah. elsewhere. Um, Pompeo went to Iraq unannounced. So the things are escalating pretty fast. And again, I am not sure whether this is a Trump um, strategy of making a lot of noise and scaring the opponent. We're trying to do it with the Chinese now. Uh, with a threat of tariffs on Friday, uh, or uh, this will go straight to a military clash. And if yeah. it happens, the Iranians can mine, can block the Strait of Hormuz, uh, through which 40% of exported oil in the world is flowing. Right. And that will bring the oil prices way above 120, into 120, 150 range for a short time. But it will be a huge, huge spike in the oil price, and that may or may not yeah. trigger a recession. Going back to Iran and this idea where they're basically saying that Europe needs to uh, send it, uh, provide it, throw it an economic lifeline within 60 days. This specific request actually is something that is written into the agreement, right? I mean, it's not that outrageous for uh, Iran to be asking for this because the European region has promised to continue trading and engaging with uh, with Iran if it did adhere to this agreement. So uh, how does this how does this work out given Europe's relationship with the US not wanting to anger them as well as frankly their promise under this pact? Indeed. Uh, the chief of European the EU foreign policy. We're not talking specific countries. Uh, we're talking Brussels, the EU. The chief of their foreign policy is a woman called Frederica Mogherini. She was the former Italian foreign minister, and she's not exactly a friend of the United States, uh, nor, by the way, uh, in this position is Germany. Germany wants to continue to trade with Iran. There are a lot of interest for the German companies. And what the Europeans did was to set up this a separate facility uh, to trade with Iran. 
the Iranians, in the meantime, are reportedly setting up uh, new uh, oil prospecting licenses that will favor the Europeans. So the Iranians are playing the oldest game in the book. They're trying to split the, the adversaries, split the EU from the United States, and the EU is splitting right into the Iranians' hands. Ariel Cohen, thank you so much. Ariel's a senior fellow of the Atlantic Council, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. As I mentioned earlier, IBM is in the market as we speak with a $20 billion corporate bond uh, deal that marks, uh, you know, a very busy week. We've got Bristol Myers earlier this week, so it's shaping up to be a very busy week in the corporate bond new issue market. To dive a little bit deeper into what's going on in that market, we turn to Molly Smith. Molly's a corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us on the phone. Molly, thanks so much for joining us. So just give us the, the details here on this IBM deal. Hey, thanks, Bob. So, yeah, this was pretty well forecast. Uh, we all knew that um, uh, IBM was going to be in the cards uh, sometime this week, and they were really um, proactive in reaching out to make calls to investors yesterday while Bristol Myers was unfolding. Um, it's been a very busy week, and we've got another busy one coming up next week with a lot of um, other forecast M&A deals. So a lot of supply coming into the market right now, but these are all M&A transactions that investors have been waiting for and preparing their portfolios for to participate. One thing that's sort of interesting, Molly, is that you've seen a little bit of tumult in U.S. equity markets, and you've seen spreads widen a little bit, and I want to emphasize little here, uh, in the corporate debt markets. So it's interesting to see these huge deals coming, and they're getting done. How well are they getting done? What, what's the pricing like? Well, Bristol first yesterday um, extremely well, and again, this really speaks to that these are not surprises, these deals coming forward. When you're going to come forward with a top 10 largest deal of all time in like the neighborhood of $20 billion, you're going to make sure that the demand is there on the investor base. So no one is being caught off guard. Investors have been preparing to participate in these deals. We saw IBM bonds selling off yesterday, so people preparing to get more exposure to that name today. Um, and yeah, it is interesting when you see a little bit of that disconnect that equities have been slumping, volatility is high, but when you have deals that people know are coming and it's a bit of a, you know, seasonality factor, too, that well, we know that May is typically a heavier month. Heading into the summer months really starts to quiet down. So if you have these kinds of deals that you need to get done, this is the time to go forward. Although it is interesting, you know, yes, there ha these have been well-telegraphed deals. These do not come as a surprise. The demand has been there. Uh, but the question is still at what price? And the fact that people are willing to price these deals at very attractive terms still for the issuers, despite some of the uncertainty, really sort of underscores the unbelievable demand for this debt that we have seen just persistently uh, this year and, frankly, uh, throughout the past decade. You know, it has been incredible. And even looking at the Bristol deal yesterday, I mean, the book ended up being what I mean, more than it was three times oversubscribed um, in that neighborhood. So it, you could have even seen like the deal go bigger, understandably, and even just looking at how much of a bridge loan they had taken out that maybe the, they could have borrowed more. But um, speaking to a bit of the discipline that borrowers have had too, and like staying within their lane and not trying to push the leverage too high, because obviously that's been a concerned in our market as well, especially with those single A names pursuing M&A and possibly going down to triple B, which it looks like so far Bristol Myers is steered clear of and IBM will probably as well. 
So Molly, what are the use of proceeds by and large for some of these big monster deals? Are these to refinance existing debt or are these for to fund M&A, to fund capital expenditures? What's kind of been the use of proceeds? This is a largely M&A. So Bristol yesterday um, was in the market to help fund the takeover of Celgene. That was a $74 billion transaction, uh, the largest merger in pharmaceutical history. Um, I believe some of the proceeds as well could be earmarked for general corporate purposes. And um, and also Bristol is pursuing um, a $5 billion share repurchase program. So some of the proceeds may be used for that as well. IBM today, this is uh, for their Red Hat trend, um, takeover. That's uh, the largest one that IBM has done in its history. And we've got next week coming up, T-Mobile um, likely will be moving forward um, with its bond sale to help fund the Sprint acquisition, as well as um, Fidelity National and WorldPay. Molly Smith, thank you so much for being with us. Molly Smith is a corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, talking about the bond bonanza currently going on in the investment grade space. And frankly, we are seeing it in the high yield debt space as well, uh, with the busiest day in about three months recently at people basically saying, now is the time we've had these deals in the works. Let's unroll them. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.